If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel 5. 1 Samuel 5. We'll be reading a lot of God's Word today. It's a good thing to do. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Give attention to the reading of God's Word. And so we're going to give attention to it today. If you don't have a Bible with you, go halfway down these aisles here. There's some black Bibles you can grab and, and use. And you can turn to 1 Samuel 5. The presence of God is a precarious thing. It's a precarious thing. You see, we were made for God's presence. Many today search for God's presence. We hear of spiritual catchphrases, sensing God's presence, drawing near to God, getting close to God, feeling his embrace. These make for good book titles oftentimes. God's presence is as popular as ever. And paradoxically, hatred of God seems to be as popular as ever. Doug Wilson likes to say, There are two pillars of faith in atheism. One, there is no God. And two, I hate him. I think that's true. We see it often today. Opposition to God seems brazen, vitriolic. For many, it seems as if they could make God go away or make any remembrance of God go away or make any future reference to God go away, any mention of his name. They would, and the world would be a better place, they think. But going back to the other side of things here, you know, many search for God today with only definite parameters and limitations to their search. They want a certain kind of God. Certain parts of God are appealing. There are certain kinds of experiences that are wanted in good. And hence, it's a God of their own making. The kind of presence they're after is only, oftentimes, only affirming, never threatening. They want a God that's predictable and controllable, one they can keep in their pocket. Well, the reason that some deny and hate God is the same reason that others want him and seek him, but only on their own terms. The reason is sin. Sin. When sin entered this world, God's presence was basically lost. Fallen man doesn't seek after God, and yet still knows enough to know that something's missing, that there's something to seek, that there's a void to fill. But fallen man either seeks God's presence in a comfortable and self-prescribed way, or he runs away from God altogether. Apart from God's grace, there's really no other option. This is the problem of God's presence We need to talk about the problem of God's presence. You see, if God is holy, and we are natural-born rebels, then God's presence isn't cute or cuddly. It's troubling. It's a problem. In Psalm 5, it says, You're not a God who delights in wickedness. In fact, evil may not dwell with you. And yet, amazingly, this is God's gracious plan to draw near to a people, to conquer that separation, to conquer sin itself. It's slow going. Often it's quite messy in 
many parts of the Bible. But it's always there, this thing of God's presence, God working in towards his people, and sometimes backing off from them. We saw in 1 Samuel 4 last week, it's in many ways a story about God's presence. More specifically, it teaches this lesson that God's presence and power cannot be assumed, it can't be manipulated, it can't be conjured up or conjoled. The chapter begins with Israel going to war, again with the Philistines, and once again they lose. So they ask, what happened? Why didn't the Lord give us victory? And then they think, ah, we know, we forgot to bring the Ark of the Covenant with us into battle. We forgot to bring the Lord into battle. You see, the Ark was this thing of the Old Testament, a gold box About so big. And it represented God's throne. It represented his mediating presence among his people. It represented his power and his rule. It represented his presence. It was a symbol of his leadership among his people. And so at times, especially Joshua 6, God had said to his people, put the ark at the front of the army and march, and will win, or better yet, and I will win. The walls of Jericho came down that way in Joshua 6. In 1 Samuel 4, Israel goes to battle a second time with the Philistines, and this time with the Ark of the Lord, the symbol of his presence and power, the Joshua 6 Ark of the Lord. But they take the ark into battle, not because God told them to, like he did in Joshua 6, but because they're, they're thinking superstitiously, just like the nations around them. They're thinking that they can harness God's presence. They're treating the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot, thinking it'll ensure victory. But God will not have it. And so we saw last week, 30,000 were killed in that second battle of 1 Samuel 4. The rest of the soldiers are hiding in their homes. The whole priesthood is wiped out in a single day. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is captured by Gentile Philistines. So symbolic of that day, a woman gives birth to a son and names him Ichabod. The glory has gone. Glory no more. And then she dies. The presence of God is a problem. It seems to have disappeared. What now? Well, now we come to 1 Samuel 5. We'll see four scenes in our passage this morning, and then a fifth scene outside of it. Scene one is God alongside the idol Dagon, Dagon, the idol of the Philistines, Dagon. You see this in the first four verses of 1 Samuel 5. Let's read these verses together. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. 
And when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen, fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Talk about poetic justice. What beautiful irony here, huh? At first it looks real bad. It looks like what left off in 1 Samuel 4, the capture of the ark is going from bad to worse. Putting Yahweh's box, or, or the Israelites' God, as it were, in the temple of Dagon, their biggest idol, symbolized that their God is better, their God won, their God is stronger. It symbolized that Dagon now owns Yahweh. It's like his little pet God next to him. That's cute. And it's there in the temple for every worshiper to see as they come through to worship Dagon and make sacrifices there. Oh, but what a surprise. We don't get to see what happened that night when the doors were closed. We're just told what was before and then what was the next morning. They return to the temple. The Philistines open the doors and Dagon is off his perch. He's face down and he's prostrate before Yahweh, before the ark. It symbolizes his bowing before him, right? He's face down in that direction. So no doubt, smirking as he wrote it, whoever wrote 1 Samuel, he says in verse 3, So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Helpless Dagon. He needs help. They put him back in his place. They prop him up again. He can do nothing. No idol can. And the true God loves to mock that. Oh, he loves to mock that. Read Isaiah 40 to 48, and you'll just see this whole stream flowing through nine chapters there of God mocking the fake gods. Like in 46 of Isaiah, where they lift it to their shoulders, those who worship idols. They carry it. They set it in its place. They hope it stays there. It cannot move from its place unless Yahweh shows up. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. It's just a statue. That's all it is. So in 1 Samuel 5, it gets even better the next day when Dagon falls down again before the ark of the Lord. But this time, verse 4, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the floor. Only the trunk was left. No arms, no hands, no head. Just, literally in the Hebrew, just Dagon. Just his torso is just Dagon. That's all that's left is what you had when you started, Dagon. Now, without even arms or, or a head to represent some sort of power or thinking. This is what we sang about already this morning, isn't it? We sang from Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. They say, where's your God? He's invisible. You can't point to him and we see him. Where's your God? Our God is in the heavens. And that doesn't mean he can't work. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak, eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. They have noses, but don't smell. They have hands, but they don't work. They don't feel. They can't move. Dagon doesn't even have them. They don't walk. They don't make a sound with their throat. They can't talk. 
Those who make them will be like them, so all who trust in them. Here's the lesson. And we have a lesson for each of these scenes, if you're following along on the sermon notes page. Here's the lesson of scene one. God has no rivals, and he will not be mocked. He has no rivals, and he will not be mocked. Dagon is no rival. Neither are the Philistines. But let's think about the Philistines' reaction to all this that's going on in Dagon's temple. Look at verse 5. It says, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Obviously written much later, and now with the benefit of history behind him, the writer of 1 Samuel says, this is a known tradition. These Philistine priests, they don't go in there anymore. They took out the ark. They probably propped Dagon back up once again, maybe glued on his arms precariously put his head back in its spot. And they tiptoed out and closed the door, at least to that room of where Dagon is. The temple is much a bigger place, I'm sure. And then there's a room with inside, probably, that is Dagon's room. And no one goes in there anymore. They don't go in there anymore because they remember what the God of Israel did that day. Those two days. That's why they stay away. They remember it. And yet... They try not to remember, and that's why they stay away. This is the stupidity and blindness of idolatry. Those who make them will be like them. They know that the God of Israel has defeated their God, and they put him back in his place, and they don't go in there anymore. They don't renounce Dagon. They don't flee to the God of Israel. They don't repent and call out for mercy? No, God, the true God, is bigger than their God. And yet, they close it up and keep worshiping him. Scene two. Scene two is God among the Philistines. Look at chapter five. We'll start reading in verse six here. It says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. But when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God, the ark of the God of Israel, must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And he answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, the next city, basically. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of this city, Gath, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. There was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was heavy there. 
And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Three different cities, all with the same problem, all with the same response. Ashdod and its surrounding area, they're struck with tumors because of God's presence, because of his judgment on them and their opposition to God's people, and, of course, just in general, their brazen wickedness. It says in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against them. What irony. Remember Dagon's hands? Broken, limp, cut off, laying on the floor, useless, powerless. Yahweh's hands are invisible, and yet they're powerful and they're active. They are heavy. If you were with us last week, you remember there's a play on words happening in these chapters. All the way from 1 Samuel 2 to 1 Samuel 7, there's a play on words, two Hebrew words for heavy and glory. They're very similar, very similar in meaning and sound. And so there's this play on words going on, like Eli and his sons were heavy because they treated God's sacrifices lightly. And now God's glory is gone. The weight of God's glory is gone. So where is his glory now at the end of chapter 4? If it's not among the Israelites, well, it's in Ashdod, isn't it? Among the Philistines. There God is heavy, weighty. There is his glory. Not for good, though. For judgment. God's glory or his presence is a problem for them. So, those in Ashdod pass, pass the buck to the next city. Gath. It'll be where Goliath's from later on in the story of 1 Samuel. This is like a slow and deadly game of hot potato, isn't it? So what happened in Ashdod happened also in Gath. Verse 9, afflicted both young and old. That's a way of saying the whole lot of them, all of them. Afflicted them with tumors, causing a very great panic. So those in Gath send God on down the line to Ekron. There are only five cities in Philistine country. These are three of the biggest ones. God is decimating them. The people of Ekron have apparently heard all about Ashdod in Gath. News has spread there some 20 miles away. So they protest the ark coming to them. They say, what are you trying to do, kill us? Verse 10. A deathly panic spread throughout the whole city. Verse 11. In fact, notice how widespread and severe the panic is throughout this whole story in all of the cities. You see words like terrified, very great panic, deathly panic. You see, whole cities, city and its surrounding territories, city after city. And with good reason do they panic. This plague is severe. Verse 12 says, the men who didn't die were struck with tumors. We're not told the number of men who did die. We're just told this, everyone either was dead or tumor-filled. And these aren't moles or something, or light scabs or something. One commentator suggests that these are hemorrhoids. I don't think so. People are dying, they're dropping, they're terrified. This isn't just the itch. Right? 
No, everyone either died or was plagued with tumors. We can see the lesson now, can't we? Here's the lesson. God cannot be conquered, but he alone conquers. God cannot be conquered when he's among the Philistines. He alone conquers. You see, chapter 4 looked like God had been conquered, and the beginning of chapter 5 looked like God had been defeated by Dagon. But you know what the second half of chapter 5 really is? His defeat of his enemies. It's his, it's his military conquest. It's a victory march all through the land. God is, the, is defeating the Philistines all by himself. We saw in the last chapter, God's people mm, felt a little insecure maybe. Get God, he'll help us, he'll assist us, he'll put us over the edge. In chapter 5 he's saying, I don't need you. He allows himself to be captured for the sake of his name and to demonstrate his power that they might know, that his people might know, that the Philistines might know, that today we might know that he's the Lord and there's none besides him. So as they move him from one city to the next, he takes out the next city, the next city, the next city. It's a victory march. And the Philistines seem to know it or, or heavily suspect it. But once again, rather than repent, Rather than turn to God in faith and fear, tumors and all, bodies piled high, and they simply want the true God to go away. Just move them on down. Just send them back. It's not worth it. Verse 11, they gathered all the lords of the Philistines and they said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it may not kill us and our people. Now we look to chapter 6, still under the same scene. In chapter 6, we see an elaborate plan to send back the ark. Not just send back the ark to the Israelites, but also a plan to remove any doubt about whether this is anything other than Yahweh. Is this possibly coincidence? Well, the first half of chapter 6 reads like this. We'll read it together and I'll just offer various comments as we read through. Chapter 6 verse 1 says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seven months it was doing this. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, you're right, do not send it back. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. This is good. They, they know they've done wrong. They know they're in trouble. They know they need to appease him. They need to show their sorrow in some way. Not repentance, but, but sorrow in some way. And these diviners say, then you'll be healed. And you'll know, it will be known to you why this hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Get this. They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. They know they're in trouble with the God of Israel, and yet it's so pathetic, isn't it? What do we give them? I don't know. Let's make gold tumors. He gave us tumors. We'll cover tumors in gold and give him gold tumors. 
And some mice, too. I mean, it's pathetic. So we read on. What does it say? They take golden mice according to the number of the lords of Philistines. The same plague was on all of you and your lords. So, verse 5, you must take images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he'll lighten his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts? Remember, remember the Egyptians? Remember the Egyptians and Pharaoh, how they hardened their hearts? Remember how he had dealt with them so severely and they didn't send the people away, but God eventually took them anyway, they departed. And then verse 7, it says, Now then, take and prepare, and here's the test, a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. Here's what's going on. It's a test. Send the ark with your five golden tumors and five gold mice. Send it back to Israel using milk cows, mama cows, not plowing cows, ones that have never been yoked up. They're not good at that. They're not used to it. And on top of that, uh, take their young away. We'll lock up the young, the calves, and... You, you can, as a city boy from Detroit, you, you know what they're doing, right? The moms would want to, to go to their calves, be instinctual. If you even said, go that way, and you push them or hit them in the butt, they'd go to the calves. It's part of who they are and what they're made to do. And so this is a test. If this thing goes to Israel, we know the Lord has done it. We know the Lord's behind all this. So, verse 9, watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, one city in Israelite country, then it's he who has done this great harm. But if not, we shall know that it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So what will happen? Well, scene 3. Scene 3, God returns home victorious. In case you wondered, God returns home victorious. Let's read verses 12 and following, where it says, The cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And so they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites, excuse me, took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. God returns home victorious. You know, if the ark's travel through the Philistine cities was something of a war campaign, now this trek, led by milk cows, is the ark's return home, something like a, an army's processional victory parade. 
If a king and his army were victorious out in battle, they would come home, the people would gather in as they saw him coming, you would know that the victory had been won, and there'd be celebration, there'd be honor shown. It's almost like that. Here's the ark. It's an army of one. An army of one. God has won the victory, and now he comes home. This is what Hannah prayed. Hannah prayed, it's not by might that a man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. This is what David will talk about when he faces off against the giant Goliath in chapter 17. He says that the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, For the battle is the Lord's. This is how God's people were freed from Egypt in the story of the Exodus. It was not by their own sword that they won the land, nor did their own arm save them. It was by your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them, Psalm 44 tells us. Now, whether God's people in 1 Samuel 6 understand all of the battle significance of God coming home victorious and alone, that's kind of beside the point. They're happy to see it. That's good. It says in verse 13, they rejoice to see it. It had been seven months, and seven months ago, it was a, boy, a head-scratcher of a story. 30,000 dead, and the ark stolen, the priests ransacked and dead. Now here comes the ark. You don't know how they're going to respond. They might go, get back to plowing. But they don't. They rejoice. They offer burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices. It reminds us that God will not abandon his people forever. The capture of the ark in chapter 4 was judgment upon them. It was going to be judgment upon the Philistines. But it was God's victory. And he returned victoriously. And that was for their good. Note verse 16. It might look like an unnecessary detail at first. It says, when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Now, this is a a spiritual comment on the Philistines. This is not just needless historical detail. They saw it. They went home. i got to report it. This is saying something about the Philistines again and the wickedness of their idolatry, the stupidity of their idolatry. Remember that this milk cow thing was a test to know for absolute certainty whether it was Yahweh God behind all the calamity or it was just coincidence. And they made the test as slanted as it could be. It would be a miracle for these mama milk cows to go straight toward the Israelites and not back towards their young. That's exactly what happened. The ark went home. God's people saw it and rejoiced. They made sacrifices and didn't get tumors. And the Philistines saw it. And they went home. They went home. Back to work. Back to life. Back to normalcy. Back to Dagon, back to our idols. Here's the lesson God is not easily dismissed 
nor forgotten. He is not easily dismissed nor forgotten. Thankfully, the ark and its significance had not been forgotten by God's people. They rejoiced and made sacrifices. And clearly, God's presence and his power were not easily dismissed by the Philistines. I kind of wanted to just pass it along and that's it. But they couldn't escape the reality that Yahweh's presence in their land meant their destruction and judgment. God will not be easily dismissed. See Dagon's crashes. See Philistines' tumors and mice. These were no coincidences. God is not easily dismissed. Or is he? They went home. They probably got healed. The tumors probably went away. They had to clean up a lot of dead bodies, but, but they go on. You see, they were willing to acknowledge the existence of Yahweh God. They were willing to acknowledge his presence and his power and his judgment, his authority. But if they could park him someplace else, that's pretty good for them. Back to the Israelites, though, we come to a fourth scene. Scene four. Amazingly, God is sent away again. God is sent away again. God's presence at first was welcomed among God's people, right? They they rejoiced, verse 13. They sacrificed, verse 15. But then his presence proves deadly and deadly to them. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. And he struck, Yahweh struck or killed some of the men of Beth Shemesh, Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Some looked upon the ark. We're not exactly sure what that means. They must have looked upon it in a way that God forbade them to. Numbers 4 gives the rules about handling the ark. It wasn't to be touched. That's why you had those poles and the holes in the side. You carried it with these wooden poles. It wasn't to be looked into even by the priests. And otherwise it was to be covered with a cloth. We don't know what they did exactly, but they somehow defamed God's worship and they belittled his laws and God struck 70 men. 70 men, or or the ESV says 70 men. The Hebrew is less clear. The Hebrew says 70 men, 50,000 men. And you think, well, you're supposed to add them up. Maybe, it might be 50,070 men that were killed. That'd be a lot who looked into it, though. We, we don't know what it means. We, it could mean, we heard 50,000, we, uh, 50, we heard 70. We're not sure, we'll put them both down. That's okay. That can work. 
it doesn't really matter, does it? Whether it's 70 or 50,070, it's still significant. It was a great blow, and the people mourned. Here's the lesson, folks. God is holy, and he will not be trifled with. God is holy, and he will not be trifled with. His presence was threatening to all involved here. The Philistines and the Israelites both have to wrestle with the problem of the presence of God. He's cute and cuddly for neither. And so as they wrestle with the problem of the presence of God, the Israelites in verse 20 ask two questions. Who is able to stand before this holy God? The answer, of course, is no one. The second question is heartbreaking. And to whom shall he go up away from us? In other words, who do we send him to? The, the Philistines passed him around city to city. They passed it back to us. Hot potato, here it is. Who do I throw it to now? Where can we put God so that we'll be safe. And notice it's he that they're referring to in all this. Not it. Yeah, it's the ark that they're looking at that's there in their presence that they want to send off, but they say that he may go. That he. In chapter 4, they want the ark to come, and it's it that might save them from their enemies. Here, they're getting clearer, aren't they? He, even in their rebellion, they're clear about the Lord being the Lord and there being none besides him. So what's their great plan? Verse 21, again, heartbreaking. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, the next city over, basically, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord because there are no priests in these days. You've got to have someone who's in charge of this ark. And from that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Except for a brief mention in 1 Samuel 14, the ark isn't mentioned again in this big story until 2 Samuel 6. In 2 Samuel 6, the ark is on the move again, and this time it's moving back in the direction of home. It's good. In 2 Samuel 6, David is now fully anointed as king, and he just whooped the butts of the Philistines. And so he gets 30,000 men to get the ark and to take it into Jerusalem, the new capital city. They all danced in this festive parade, this giant procession. They danced and praised and sung as this ark traveled toward Jerusalem. But then the ark sitting on a cart, tipped. And a man named Uzzah put his hand out to steady the ark. 
God said, don't touch the ark. No one touches the ark. But you can imagine Uzzah's reasoning. I mean, surely God wants me to violate some small detail of his law in order for the ark to not hit the ground, for it to not get dirty, for it to not get dented. Surely I'm doing the right thing right now, yes? No. God killed Uzzah right then. Imagine, it went from 30,000 people celebrating and dancing, and then there's screeches, cries, gasps, and then silence. And Uzzah in the dirt. The next verse of this passage, 2 Samuel 6, tells us that David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And the verse after that says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How are we going to manage this thing? Where's it supposed to go? And the story goes on to show it going into Jerusalem. Eventually it's put in a temple and it, it turns out all right. But, but you can't miss. The, the thing that stands out is God's presence is precarious. It's dangerous. It's not to be trifled with. And God is not just capricious or needlessly picky in his judgment of Uzzah. So we not be, need not be angry like David or confused like David. The ark was given to communicate this message. You can't touch God. You can't draw near to him on your own. Religion is not you reaching out and touching him. It's not you coming to him on your own terms. It's not your human wisdom. And it's certainly not you thinking, Uzzah, that somehow your sinful hand is cleaner than the dirt on the ground. God's presence is precarious. And David is angry, then afraid, then bewildered. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Well, let's try to answer that question. Let's answer the root of David's question with how, 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 how can we get God's presence then? It looks all hopeless. Well, one more scene as we wrap this up. Scene five. God will come again in salvation and or judgment. God will come again. Really, from our vantage point, we could say or should say, God did come again. From their vantage point, we'd say, God will come again. From ours, we say he did. And of course, I'm talking about the New Testament. And there are two ways that our Old Testament passages connect to the New Testament. We should always be thinking that. One is that God has come again in Jesus. Not a box, but a body. He is Emmanuel. Which means God with us. As you read that in Matthew 1 at Christmas time, you smile. God with us. Cool. Love the story. Love the baby in the manger and the, art, the, the star over there. The wise men coming. I love it. God with us. Oh, tremble. God with us. 
You see, like the Israelites in 1 Samuel 6, some rejoiced at Jesus' coming, but like the Philistines and like many of the Israelites, oh, Jesus seemed curious to so many in his day. They were interested in him somewhat, but eventually they wanted him to move on down the road. In Mark 5, Jesus heals a man who has a legion of demons in him. He's been terrorizing his hometown, running around naked. He's out of his mind. People couldn't chain him up. He'd break out, and Jesus heals him instantly. And here's what Mark 5 says. The people came to see what it was that happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It's one thing to be afraid of a bunch of demons. It's another thing to be afraid of the guy who's in charge of all the demons. And he's there. He's in your town. In Luke 5, it's the story of the disciples fishing, where Jesus miraculously fills the boats that they're almost sinking. And what kind of response does that garner? Peter just saying, Ah, oh, Jesus, thanks so much for the fish! High five! I don't have to fish for a year! It's great. Thanks a lot. No, it says Peter fell at his feet and said, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man. The guy who com- the God who commands fish to get in the boat and they do? Oh, he knows my heart. He knows my sin. He's holy and I'm not. I'm in trouble. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and the religious leaders hold a meeting to discuss this Jesus, and here's their conclusion. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Matthew 12, a man with a withered hand is healed by Jesus and the religious leaders conspired against him to destroy him. And this was God's plan all along, by the way. There's no threat here whatsoever. This is his plan. And that leads us to the the second connection in the New Testament. The first being, God has come again in Jesus, not a box, but a body. And he was opposed, but he's the Lord. And and secondly, opposition to Jesus looked like defeat, but it was actually victory. It looked like it was his defeat. Just like in 1 Samuel, God allowed the ark to be captured and taken into enemy territory. He was doing something, though. He was judging his people. He was was purging the Philistines. He, He was mocking Dagon. Well, so too at the cross. It is all part of God's plan to bring judgment and salvation to the world. In the cross, it looks like defeat. Even at the arrest in the garden, it looks like defeat, trouble. Oh no! The death of Jesus looks like truly, it's finished. That's it. Go home. We've been duped. No, God was showing himself mighty in that weakness. 
Showing himself mighty over Satan and sin and death and the curse. God boomeranged the whole thing in that gospel weekend when he raised Jesus from the dead. And the book of Hebrews helps us immensely at this point. Just hear this. Hebrews 2, it tells us that Jesus became a man and dwelt among us that through death, his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. On the cross, Jesus defeated the devil. That's one reason why he came. You say, well, what difference does that make for us? What hope does that give us? Well, a few verses later, Hebrews 2, it says that he came and died so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, a mediator, an intercessor to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What's propitiation? It's a a thick theological word. It means God's God's wrath being quenched. He, He soaked up God's wrath that was due to us. He bore God's wrath so that we might go free. The cross and the resurrection then are not just his victory lap. It's our salvation and our forgiveness and our our payment being paid. It's our cleansing. And now, through faith, we Christians, we've drawn near. Hebrews talks about this drawing near all over the place. Hebrews 10 says, let us draw near. Draw near to God? Are you... Are you sure? The God of the ark? The God of 1 Samuel 5 and 6 and 2 Samuel 6. That God we're going to draw near? Yeah, yeah. We're going to draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. If Jesus didn't die, we're worse off than the Philistines or the Israelites in those days. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please him and be right with him. For for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Philistines did that. That's not enough. Must also believe that he rewards those who seek him. And hence, Hebrews 4 is just so gloriously rich and welcoming when it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God. Of grace. Throne. Remember the ark was like a, like a throne. Draw near to the throne. It's a throne of grace because the blood has been poured on the altar and the sacrifice was perfect and eternal. It's done. If you're not a Christian, you can ignore God for a time. You can send him down the road. He'll go. In a sense. He won't bother you like a gold box in your house ready to destroy you. You don't have to send him down the road in a sense. You don't have to see him. That doesn't mean he's not there though. These days he isn't seen, but he is not absent. And you can only suppress the truth for so long. Romans 1 says that by nature, that's what we all do as sinners. We suppress the truth. We don't own up to all that we know to do and and all that we know is true. We send truth down the road. And you can do that for a while. But he's coming again more fully a final time. 
And Revelation 11 talks about that, and it pictures it like this. At the end of time, the curtain is going to be pulled back. The ark of God is going to be exposed, and God's judgment will pour out from that ark into all the world. He's not a God to be ignored or trifled with. He's a God who's holy, holy, holy. He won't dwell with the wicked. Your only hope is Christ's righteousness, not your own. He's powerful, and he will judge. And yet he's made a way to bring his presence in all its awesome glory to sinful human beings, with nothing less than the blood and death and resurrection of Jesus. What are you going to do with God? Christian, you have drawn near. Keep drawing near. Practice his presence. Enjoy communion. Read his word. Pray often. Keep yourself from idols. Idols are insanely stupid. You're messing with idols right now? Oh, not like statues, but, but the gods of this world, money and your retirement package and your image to others and maybe your kids, things that you treasure more than God himself, these are idols. You're playing with idols? Take a good long look at Dagon. They're all that weak and fragile and stupid. And trust him. Trust him, Christian. William Cooper taught us to sing, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. He moves in mysterious ways. 1 Samuel 4 through 6 showed us that. He moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and to search for his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will one day make it plain. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize in our hearts and lives, our minds, our beliefs, our actions and desires that you have no rivals and you will not be mocked. Keep us from sin and keep us from idols. Keep us from self-reliance, knowing that you cannot be conquered and you alone conquer. Lord, keep us from prayerlessness knowing that you're not easily dismissed. Keep us from forgetfulness. Father, help us to know that you are holy, 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 and you're not to be trifled with. And you're merciful as well. We thank you that, Jesus, you came again in salvation and in judgment. We thank you for your blood. We thank you that it represents your holiness your justice, and your love, your mercy. It's our hope. Help us now to worship through that blood for your namesake.